Okay, let's get started, inshallah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Allahumma alimna min ilmika ma tarda bihi anna, wa la tuakhidna bima ta'alamuhu minna. Allahumma ya halim, wa haqqitna bi khuluhi al-hilm, wa haqqitna bi haqqaiq al-ilm. Subhanaka la ilma lana illa ma'alamtana innaka anta al-alim al-hakim. So welcome again, everybody. Uh, I see some familiar names. Uh, really, really good to be back with you, alhamdulillah, um, in this session, um, the last uh, of the um, uh, sessions before Eid. I think tomorrow, inshallah, we'll enjoy a session, a khutbah, perhaps by uh, Dr. Abdul Hakim Murad, inshallah. I hope you've all enjoyed the sessions um, as much as I have. Um, I haven't caught all of them, but those that I was able to listen to, I benefited from uh, tremendously. And once again, we thank uh, CMC and uh, the entire team uh, for putting together uh, this excellent uh, program, alhamdulillah. So um, thank you for tuning in. I know um, you're probably uh, still fasting, maybe getting ready to close your fast, um, perhaps preparing for iftar, um, perhaps getting ready for aid. So inshallah, we'll keep this uh, uh, brief and um, uh, short, inshallah. Um, just uh, uh, honored to be with you uh, once again. So the theme that I was uh, asked to speak about is uh, the theme of Between the Two Mounts, which is about the amazing story of Hajar alayhi uh, salam and Ismail and Ibrahim and that blessed family and the significance of the act of Sa'i, of walking and crossing between the two mountains of Safa and Marwa, which we perform in the Hajj and the Umrah. Now, this is a story that I think most of us are probably familiar with, uh, one that we've heard uh, many times, perhaps. Um, Dr. Matson also, uh, God bless her, uh, she also shared some beautiful reflections about the story. Um, but it's also one that, you know, we can't, uh, we can't get enough of. You know, it's one that we're constantly enriched by reflecting upon, by drawing lessons from, by thinking about how uh, to apply it in our personal and collective lives. And one that we return to from time to time as we ourselves continue to grow and to develop and at every uh, you know, stage in our own development um, and different junctures in our own life, there might be a different lesson uh, for us in, 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 these, in these stories and in uh, these rites and rituals of the Hajj. So briefly, let's begin uh, again by revisiting the story of, of Hajar alayhi salam and, and reflecting about it uh, together. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll share um, maybe um, for half an hour or so, and, and we'll open the door for, for questions. So feel free as I go along to ask questions, I'll probably come back to them um, towards the end of the session, inshallah. So we have uh, reports about the story of Hajar uh, in early sources, uh, like the history of Tabari and the Tafsir of Tabari, um, the uh, Seer of Ibn Hisham and others. And we know that she was uh, a Coptic uh, slave girl who was given to Sarah, the wife of Ibrahim, as a gift uh, from the uh, Pharaoh at the time, who in fact had tried to force himself upon Sarah uh, unsuccessfully. God uh, protected her. Uh, God caused him essentially to, his hand was paralyzed multiple times. And every time uh, she would pray, he would ask her to pray uh, and ask God to release him. And she would, and then he would try again. And eventually he recognized that there was uh, something uh, special and unique about her. He was afraid of her. And so he released her and he sent with her uh, Hajar, uh, one of the slave girls in his palace uh, as a gift that he gave to her. So Hajar uh, goes back with Sarah 
and uh, you know, Sarah takes a liking, a, a liking to her. And at this time, Sarah and Ibrahim are, are advanced in age. In some reports, they're over, you know, she's over the age of 70. They haven't had any children. And she offers, uh, she offers Hajar to Ibrahim um, uh, as, a, as a concubine and says to him, perhaps she might, uh, she might give you a child, that she might bear a child for you. And at this time, you know, Ibrahim is continuously beseeching and supplicating God, Rabbi Habli min al-Salihin, asking him for pious offspring. And, you know, his wife, Sarah, is over the age of 70. He's well into his 90s, approaching 100 years of age. And they haven't had any children. And yet he continues to repeat the supplication, Rabbi Habli min al-Salihin. And sure enough, uh, God answers his prayer uh, and Hajar becomes uh, pregnant with uh, Ismail. And in the Genesis uh, uh, version of the story, um, she's somewhat distraught at a certain point. Uh, perhaps there's some uh, you know, bitterness or some misunderstanding between her and Sarah. And uh, she, uh, she's in a state of distress and Gabriel comes to her in the state of distress and tells her, gives her glad tidings that she's in fact pregnant with a son and that when she gives birth to him, to name him Ishmael, uh, which means that God, God will or God shall hear. So she goes back to Ibrahim. She tells him what Gabriel said to him, uh, what Gabriel said to her. And uh, sure enough, she gives birth to him and they name him uh, Ismail, right? Now, just to pause here for a second and we'll come back to, to what happens to Ismail. But, you know, later on, um, some, you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years later, the angel comes back to Sarah and Ibrahim and gives them glad tidings of, uh, of a boy of Ishaq, and after him from his line would come uh, Yaqub, and, and a whole line of prophets from Ishaq, right? And the Tabari tells us at this time, Ibrahim is over the age of 120, and that Sarah is nine years old. And we have this in the Quran that, you know, the angels come to, to them, give them this glad tiding, and she laughs because, you know, she's, she's barren. She's over the age of 90, she's surprised. Uh, she's also happy, um, but, you know, that this is, uh, that this is uh, God answering a prayer that Ibrahim has been making for uh, decades and, and decades, right? And then he says in, in the Quranic uh, verse, Alhamdulillahilladhi wahabali ala al-kibari Ismaila wa ishaq inna rabbi lasami'ud-du'at, right? That indeed, uh, that he praises God who has granted me, despite my age, ala al-kibari, despite my age, Ismaila and ishaq, inna rabbi lasami'ud-du'at, indeed, Verily, my Lord is one who hears prayers, right? So he never became, uh, you know, um, discouraged. He never lost hope or despaired after having prayed to God for a righteous child for possibly a century. He's 120 at this point. I don't know when he started asking for God for a, a blessed son or a pious offspring, but it took, it took a while, right? And this is actually a sunnah of all of the messengers, right? That they continuously pray for something. They never stop and they never get discouraged. They never despair, right? Uh, in the story of Musa alayhi salam, uh, Musa and Harun, they ask God to, you know, efface the wealth of Pharaoh and his entourage and uh, to, to, to obliterate their wealth and to harden their hearts, right? In the Quran, it says, وَقَالَ Musa." رَبَّنَا إِنَّكَ آتَيْتَ فِرْعَوْنَ وَمَلَأُهُ زِينَةً وَأَمْوَالًا فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا رَبَّنَا لِيُضِلُّوا عَنْ سَبِيلِكَ رَبَّنَا اطْمِسْ عَلَىٰ أَمْوَالِهِمْ وَاشْدُدْ عَلَىٰ قُلُوبِهِمْ 
فلا يؤمنوا حتى يروا العذاب الأليم. That Moses said, Our Lord, indeed you have given Pharaoh and his establishment splendor and wealth in the worldly life, our Lord, that they may lead men astray from your way. Our Lord, obliterate their wealth and harden their hearts so they will not believe until they see the painful punishment. So they make this supplication, right? And then God responds, he said, Right, that God says, your supplication has been answered. So stand firm and follow not the way of those who do not know. Now the, the uh, exegetes tell us that it was another 40 years before this supplication was in fact, in fact materialized in, in uh, Moses' life, right? So God says, at that moment that they made the supplication, God answered it. He said, your, your supplication has been answered. And yet they had to wait 40 years to see that happen, that Pharaoh be destroyed and so on and so forth in his entourage, right? So this is a sunnah of the prophets that we continue, that they continue and that we should continue to supplicate God, to ask of him and never at any point to despair uh, or to lose hope or to, to think, you know, God doesn't want this for me or God didn't answer my prayer and so on. And sometimes we ask not, not from any type of, um, not from a bad place, but we just wonder, you know, should I actually keep praying for something that I've been praying for for 10, 15, 20 years? Maybe it's the sign that it's not good for me. Maybe I should stop. Maybe I should redirect my prayers to something else, right? But, you know, we, we know and we're taught that so long as what we're asking for is something that is good, not something that's bad, we're not praying, you know, that God, um, um, you know, um, harm somebody else or something that's harmful to us, that we continue to pray and that the, the prayer itself, the supplication itself is what's intended, is the goal itself in, 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 uh, in um, enacting and in, um, uh, in manifesting that need, that complete need for God and that submission to him, that we've already achieved the goal just by being in that state of dot. And also we know that the greater the difficulty and the greater, the longer the delay, most, uh, most often, usually that's actually a sign that it will be something that's very blessed and that it'll, it will be a great opening for us and that there is divine intervention in it, right? Because for some people, you know, God says that they ask me, I just give them because God doesn't want to hear their voice. God doesn't want, you know, to shape and sculpt their hearts and their characters to attach him, attach them to him. He's not interested in having them. He'll give them whatever they want and just get, get rid of them essentially, right? But people that God, you know, he wants good for them and he wants to give them his everlasting and his infinite self that he tries them through the delays uh, of uh, their supplication. And we know that that there is always good and there's always blessing in uh, the delays that we experience. So this is a lesson that we take uh, from uh, this particular uh, in instance and this incident in, this, in the life of Hajar and her family. So now uh, Hajar gives birth to Ismail, right? And when he's still a baby, uh, God commands his father Ibrahim to take him and to take his mother from Palestine where they were living to this arid valley, uh, you know, with no, no, you know, no people, no comforts, no trees, no vegetation, nothing, an arid valley, a desert where the ancient house of Adam used to be. So he takes Hajar and Ismail there, who's still a baby at the time. And he literally, you know, uh, puts down next to them a bag of dates and water skin, and he just starts walking away in the middle of the desert. So imagine this scenario, right? He just turns his back and starts walking away without saying anything. So Hajar is obviously 
confused, distraught. She says, oh, Abraham, you know, uh, to whom are you entrusting us? You know, wh where are you going? And in some narrations, he doesn't answer her. Several times she keeps asking. And, you know, the fact that he doesn't answer is really interesting. You know, what, what, how is he, you know, as Dr. Mattson mentioned, you know, how is he feeling? You know, what is, what's going through his heart and his mind? That, of course, he's submitting to God's command, but it, you know, it, it couldn't have been easy to, to, after waiting for this long to have a son, to be told, go drop him off in the middle of the desert, right? So uh, it's a test for him as well, a test for her. And, uh, and finally, uh, she asks him in, a, in one of the narrations, you know, has God commanded you to do this? You know, she knows him. She knows who he is, what he's like, you know, what, uh, what forces direct his life. And so she says it can only be that God commanded him. And she asks him, has God commanded you to do this? And he responds, yes, right? And then she says, okay, then go, because he will not lead us astray. He will not lose us, you know. God, if this is from God, then God will not, uh, will not, will not forget us. He will not uh, lose us. Then, you know, go. And, 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 and you know, we will be uh, taken care of, right? So again, so... She, know, she knew who Ibrahim was, and she trusted him for that, uh, on account of that, but she also knew who God was, because it, the story doesn't make any sense otherwise, right? If she didn't know who Abraham was, and she didn't know who God was, then none of it would make any sense. She wouldn't be asking, did God command you? She wouldn't be saying, and then that's sufficient for us. You know, she would be uh, reacting as we would probably react, complete hysteria. So uh, Ibrahim uh, leaves, and uh, in some uh, in some of the um, in some of the the exegesis um, that uh, on, on his way out that he prays for them that the dua where God uh, where Abraham uh, says um, where Abraham says uh, that he's left some of his offspring in this valley where there's no vegetation near your sacred house our Lord let them perform the prayer and make hearts of men yearn towards them and provide them with fruits that they may be thankful so that in, in some of the um, of this verse that this this publication was made as he was leaving them in the desert so he leaves them and of course the water skin with which he left them is insufficient and they finish it and then Ismail becomes very hungry and he's on the brink of of death and Hajar begins to search uh intensely for water she starts with running to the the mount of, of Salta she climbs on it, she looks around as far as she can see, she sees nothing and no one. She climbs down, she runs to Marwa, she does the same thing there, she, she searches and, and looks. And she continues this seven times between the Safa and the Marwa. And then uh, after the seventh time, she goes back to Ismail. And you know, she's, um, uh, she's, she's in a state of obviously desperation, um, uh, searching for water, trying to use the means that she has. Uh, to 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 find water for them, and she finds Ismail, this little baby, scraping the ground with his foot. And they say, out of thirst, he's scraping his 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 foot, out of thirst. And then Gabriel again comes to her and says to her, "Who are you?" And she says, "I'm Hajar, the mother of the son of Ibrahim." And he says, "To whom did he, Ibrahim, entrust you?" And she says, "He entrusted us to God." So even at this time, you know. Uh, she isn't asking of, of, of Gabriel anything. She says he's entrusted us to God and that's sufficient. And then Jibreel responds to her, then he has entrusted you to one who is sufficient. Uh, right? He reminds her of that. And then at that moment that uh, it, the Ismail who was scraping uh, the ground, the spring of Zamzam 
uh, wells up and water bursts forth, right? And she drinks and she gives him to drink. And you know she's concerned that the water might might finish, so she starts to kind of dam the water. And, and, Jab and Gabriel uh, Gabriel Gabriel tells her, "Don't worry, you know this will continue uh, to flow." So this is a story of the well of Zamzam that we continue to drink from and benefit from uh, today. Um, and uh, and Hedger and her son, uh, you know, they remain there um, at the well. And uh, God, just as Abraham had prayed for them, that some people will come to them. That uh, the uh, the tribe uh, of uh, of Jorhum are passing through the desert, and they see some birds circling above the well, and so they know that that's a sign that there must be water. So they go, they follow these birds towards the well. They find Hajar and Ismail there, and they ask permission to settle um, at the well of of, of, of Zemzem, and Hajar permits them on uh, on the condition that she retains control uh, of the well. Right. So again, in this story, we see that this is just one episode in the story of Ibrahim and his family, that this is a family that truly embodied this complete and, and, and utter trust and surrender and reliance on God um, in, in the most, you know, uh, unlikely and the most trying of circumstances, that this is consistently uh, their outstanding characteristics of the family. Uh, of Ibrahim, first and foremost, of Sarah, um, you know, when she sent to the uh, to the to the palace of Pharaoh, and she trusts in God then, and of Hajar, um, at this this time uh, of that the odds seem completely uh, impossible, and yet she is completely trusting in God and in His prophet Ibrahim salam. and we see this in the story of Ibrahim even before that, when he's thrown into the fire, um, and you know, even Jibril comes to him and says, you know. Do you need anything, <laughs> right? Um, he says, do you need anything? And he says to him, you know, from you, I don't need anything, right? And he is, is attached to God and he is in this, he repeats the, uh, the, the supplication, that God is sufficient uh, for us and he is the best disposer of affairs. Um, and of course, later on when Ismail grows up, and he is ordered to, to sacrifice either Ismail uh, or Ishaq, and the dominant opinion is that it's, it's Ismail that he's ordered to sacrifice. Again, he submits himself, and God, by God's own testimony in the Quran, he says, uh, that when God said to Ibrahim, surrender, Aslim, he said, I surrender uh, to God, uh, the Lord of the world, right? So this is, the uh, the chief kind of uh, um, uh, virtue that Ibrahim and his family embody that we learn uh, from them, and that when we go on Hajj, that's in fact the uh, lesson and the um, the state that we are trying to cultivate in in our own hearts. Um, now, the act of the 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 ritual, the rite of um, circumambulation or walking, crossing between the um, Safa and the Marwa. Right. So later on, uh, Ibrahim returns to uh, Mecca, and he uh, he uh, is ordered to build the Kaaba with the help of Ismail, who is now uh, grown up. And he asks God, He asks God to show us uh, our rites, our rituals at this sacred house of yours. Right. So God teaches him the Tawaf around the Kaaba, and he also uh, includes in those rites the sa'i between the Safa. And the Marwa, and in some accounts, you know, Hajar told him what had happened and so on, and that this was then um, 
uh, formally, you know, uh, introduced as a practice in the site. And it continues from the time of Abraham, you know, uh, some uh, 4,000 years or, you know, several millennia later, uh, in the time of the Prophet Muhammad we find that the Arabs at that time were also performing the Hajj in some, in some capacity, in some way. They did introduce uh, various um, elements into it, um, especially the introduction of uh, the idols that they, they, they placed around the Kaaba, inside of the Kaaba. And they also placed two large idols on Safa and on Marwa. And it became such that as people were crossing between the two mounts, they uh, were essentially doing it to seek blessings from the two idols that were placed on these two mounts. So they would go towards Safa, they would touch the, uh, the idol that was there and they would seek blessings from it. And then they would go to Marwa. So it was no longer an act of, you know, uh, in, in the meaning of Tawheed, in the meaning of surrender to God, it became about these idols and seeking uh, blessings from them. So at this time now, with, in, in the early days of Islam, some of the companions uh, were not so sure whether or not they should be performing uh, the uh, Sa'i between Safa and Marwa, because at that time it had become uh, associated uh, with um, had become associated with um, uh, the uh, the acts of the Jahli Arabs, uh, as I mentioned, of uh, veneration for these uh, these idols, right? So in this verse um, in the Quran that I have here on the slide, uh, God says, "Inna al-Safa wal-Marwata min sha'ir Allah, fman hajj al-bayt aw atamra fala junah alayhi ayyatawwaf bihima, wa man tawwaf." that God says truly Safa and Marwa are among the symbols, the Sha'air of God, of Allah. So whoever performs the Hajj to the house or Umrah, there is no blame on him for walking between them. And whosoever volunteers good, truly God is thankful knowing. So this verse is interesting for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, uh, the beginning of the verse says, Safa and Marwa are among the symbols, the Sha'air of Allah, right? And this word Sha'air is used, you know, synonymously often with Manesik, that this is uh, something that, uh, you know, uh, that, that you perform as a rite, as a ritual, at, at a veneration of God. Right, that those who show veneration um, to the sha'at or the symbols of God, that this is of, this is a sign of the taqwa that is in the hearts, right? So God is responding to these companions that come to the Prophet Muhammad and they say to him, you know, should we be performing the sa'i between Safa and Marwa? And some of the narrations, they say it's because there were verses that came to the Prophet Muhammad specifically about the tawaf of the Kaaba. So they understood that that act was something that had been you know, uh, Islamized, so to speak. And however, they were they were not sure about the circumambulation between Safa and Marwa. Was it still kind of a holdover from um, the days of ignorance? Was it an idolatrous practice as it was practiced or not, right? So God says, no, this is min sha'airillah, right? This is an, a, a, a practice introduced by Ibrahim and Hajar. And so whoever does Hajar Umrah, فَلَا عَلَيْهِ أَنْ بِهِمَا, right? So in the Arabic, it says there is no blame on him for walking between the Safa and the Marwa, right? It's not saying it's obligatory, right? That's what you would have expected. It's saying, right? So it's really interesting because, so in the Arabic, this, this term, you find it all over the Quran, 
in various verses, sometimes it implies mere permission, mere permissibility of something, right? Sometimes it implies that something's recommended, and at other times it, it implies that something is commended, right? So you need to know the context, you need to know uh, the um, uh, other verses that relate to that, you need to know uh, the uh, cause uh, or the reason for the revelation of the verse and so on and so forth. So in one uh, hadith, um, Aisha radiallahu anha, uh, her nephew, Arwa ibn Zubair, who's uh, the, the, the son of Zubair and Asma, her nephew, who's someone who narrates uh, copiously from Aisha, his aunt, he comes to her and he says, you know, this verse says, right? That, you know, there's no blame on anyone if they decide not to do the side between Safa and Marwa. That's what the verse says, right? He's like literally interpreting the verse on a literal basis, right? And she responds to him quite harshly and says, you know, this is, uh, this is not at all what the verse says, right? And she explains to him the reason that the verse is phrased as such is because some of the companions had come to the Prophet Muhammad and had said, you know, this is the practice that they, they do this, this uh, side between Safa and Marwa for the veneration of the idols, should we do it? And, uh, and, and, and so God says, meaning that, you know, there's no blame on you to do the sa'i, right? Even though it had become a practice that was associated with the idols. So either before these idols were broken, right? And destroyed that to do the sa'i while the idols are still, still there, there's no blame upon you, even though the idols are there or after the idols had been destroyed, don't associate the, the act of sa'i as being merely a veneration, an act of veneration of idols, because this is something that is min sha'airillah, right? And that's why the verse opens with this, uh, that it is of the symbols um, of God, right? So this is uh, one thing to note about the verse. And then uh, another thing to note about this verse is that, um, you know, God says at the end, in the shakirun alim, you know, uh, and whosoever volunteers good, truly God is thankful and knowing. And, you know, you would think, again, just based on the verse, that it means that, um, that it means that, uh, you know, you can do extra sa'i if you want, right? But in fact, the sa'i is not an act like tawaf that you can do at any time, right? It's not something that whenever you enter the Masjid al-Haram, for example, you can uh, greet the house through tawaf. You can, you know, in some schools, even you can do one or, or two or three ashwat uh, 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 of the tawaf, right? Sa'i is not something you can just do extra just for ibadah. It's only something that we do in the umrah and in the hajj, right? So, meaning that those who want to do another umrah, an additional umrah in which they would do an, another sa'i, that in Allah shakirun alim. And God uses these two names, Shakirun and Alim, that God is thankful and God is knowing.
Um, can everybody still hear me? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thought that I had a technical problem, but I don't. So let me just carry on then. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, okay, here. Sorry. Uh, so let's continue then. Um, the two names of Allah, Shaq that uh, God is thankful and God is knowing. So how is God uh, thankful? You know, what does God's name Shakir mean? And what does God's name Al-Alim uh, mean, right? So the name, generally speaking, what is gratitude? What is shukr, right? It is a, uh, you know, grateful response to somebody else doing something good for you or to you, right? It's a, it's, it's, um, a, a grateful, gracious response to uh, in'am, that someone else is giving you a blessing, is, is being kind to you, um, and you are responding with gratitude, right? So, of course, uh, God is above uh, that meaning and that understanding, but God, you know, he, um, he blesses us, right? He gives us success for doing the smallest, the most insignificant, the most deficient of deeds, and yet he responds with, you know, recompense, and he responds with quote unquote gratitude in the sense that he, you know, rewards us for the very deeds that he enabled us to do. Right. This is Allah's Allah's attribute of Al Shakur, uh, which is the, the, the more intensive uh, form of the name Al Shakir, right? That he recompenses and rewards his his servants for the little that they do and the little that they do, which he himself gave them success in the ability uh, to do. Right. So in, in in fact he's praising himself. Right in 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 showing us that mercy and that reward for our, our deeds. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention um, concerning this verse is uh, the placement of the verse in Surah Al-Baqarah. Right. So the Mufassirun they mentioned that this verse comes after another set of verses directly after verse one fifty eight, as you see. Verses one fifty five to one fifty seven are about patience. So God says, God says, O oh, you who believe, seek help with patient perseverance, with sabr and salah and prayer. For Allah is with those who patiently persevere. And do not say of those who are killed in the path of God that they are dead, uh, rather they are alive, but you do not perceive that. And forgive me, I don't have the translation of that second uh, verse. And then the third verse here in, in the English, and surely we shall try you with something of fear and hunger and loss of wealth and lives and crops, but give glad tidings to those who patiently persevere. Give glad tidings to those who patiently persevere, who say when afflicted with calamity to Allah we belong and to him is our return. They are those on whom descend blessings from God and mercy, and they are the ones that receive uh, guidance. 
So immediately after these verse, verses that uh, invoke and uh, remind us to show patience and that we will indeed be tried with fear, with hunger, with loss of wealth, with lo loss of lives and crops, right? That we will be tried and that the only appropriate response is one of patience and that those who respond with patience, that they are with God, that God is with them in Allah Ma'asabirin and that they are given glad tidings, right? And that they're described that when a calamity befalls them, you know, they respond with, to Allah we belong and to him is our return, right? So they say that the fact that this verse is placed uh, immediately after um, uh, the verse concerning Safa and Marwa is placed immediately after uh, is a reminder that this is, you know, the outcome of the patience of Hajar and Ibrahim and, that, and, that, and Ismail and that blessed famine, right? That they were indeed, you know, patient and they had affliction after affliction after affliction, right? And they are kind of the, 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 the paragons and the exemplars of, you know, true patience and contentment and surrender to God. And that the outcome of that patience is that, you know, in their situation that they become the, uh, you know, the, the, the father and the, 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 the patriarch and the matriarch, the father and the mother of this great ummah. And that God, you know, he answered Ibrahim's prayer that he gave him not only his half and the lines of prophets through his half, but also the line uh, through Ismail uh, leading to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, all of the prayers that Ibrahim prayed uh, for his progeny that they, you know, they established the prayer that they give life to Mecca and to the rites uh, that he introduces. All of those prayers that we find in the Quran that they're all realized in the person of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And now his ummah is being told in the Safa and Marwa min sha'ilillah, right? That Safa and Marwa, which is where Hajar was searching for water that it is of and that's the reward, you know, Allahu Shakir and Alim, that this is God's reward for her patience and for her steadfastness and for her contentment and surrender to God and trust in him and in his prophet, uh, Ibrahim alayhi salam, right? And we know that she's buried in the Hijr, uh, her and Ismail are buried in the Hijr. And so whenever we go and we do our tawaf that we're literally doing tawaf and the angels are doing tawaf constantly around Hajr and Ismail and that they are, God says, you know, don't say that they are dead, that they are alive with God and they are experiencing and aware of us as we, you know, visit them and as we um, continue the sunnahs that they introduced. And this sunnah of Sa'i is a sunnah introduced by Hajar alayhi salam. So now just to finish off uh, with a few, just a few more um, quick uh, notes before we open up for questions, inshallah. So we mentioned uh, that the, um, the uh, you know, in the time of the Prophet Muhammad that the um, Safa and Marwa, the, the Sa'i between them was uh, something that he uh, taught his companions to perform in Hajj and Umrah and he himself performed them. We know he would begin with the Safa and as he was climbing the Safa, he would say, you know, that we begin with what God began with meaning, you know, in the verse, God says, in the Safa wal Marwa, not in the Marwa Safa, right? So we begin with what God began with, and he would uh, pray uh, upon the Mount of Safa and then walk, and that certain uh, you know, sections of the, the, the crossing he would run, and then he would arrive to Marwa and do the same, right? So what is the significance of this practice, right? So like many of the other acts of Hajj, um, you know, it's purely uh, an act of, you know, obedience to the divine command. It's 
quote unquote, you know, super rational. It's not rationalizable. So when we ask the question of, okay, why do we do the sai, right? Or why do we, you know, wash our feet and we do why three rakas in Maghrib and two rakas in Fajr, you know, why all these things? Why some of the gendered norms in our tradition? Why do the men have to go to Jamaah and the women, you know, are exempted from Jamaah? Why, 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 right? So when we ask a why question, there's always two possible, you know, meanings to the why question. Is the question meaning the purpose of the act? You know, is it something, the, the benefit of the act, its intent, right? Sometimes we know the answer to that question, right? So some, you know, uh, oftentimes sales and contracts, the way in which we buy and we sell, you know, it's rationalizable that, you know, you have to have agreement of both parties. Um, you have to have consent. Both parties have to be benefiting. You know, why is RIBA, uh, why is, uh, is interest, you know, uh, forbidden? It's quite obvious what the, the financial uh, benefits of its prohibitions are, right? It's, it's rationalizable. And yet there is a whole other uh, area of the law, often in ibadat in particular, that uh, we don't have a, a definitive answer for the rationale of that act, right? Like I mentioned, the acts of Hajj, why seven times, you know, why the wudu in the way we do it, why the washing of the feet and so on. And they say that, you know, our submission and our surrender to God in these acts that the intellect cannot, you know, um, understand, cannot, uh, cannot make sense of, cannot rationalize, that our, our reward for them is in fact more, more profound because they are you know, purely acts of surrender and of remembrance of God. And in this meaning, there's a hadith where the Prophet Muhammad says, uh, stoning the pillars, circumambulation, tawaf, and hurrying between Safa and Marwa were made for the remembrance of God and not for anything else, right? So in and of themselves, they are acts of worship and of submission and surrender. And yet, despite that, you know, we can still you know, reflect upon and offer potential wisdoms and spiritual meanings for that outward act. You know, it's, we know that Hajj is an, an inward journey that we enact uh, outwardly and physically. And so we reflect upon from our personal experience, from various indications from our spiritual tradition, we have these wisdoms and these spiritual meanings that we benefit from. So some of what they say about this uh, is that the word, you know, sa'i, uh, it means in Arabic to, you know, strive, to struggle, to, to persevere, you know, it has this meaning of struggle and of difficulty that you uh, endure and that you can, that you persist with, right? Sai. This is the meaning of sai, right? And God said, that the human being will not have except what he strives for, you know, what he struggles for. So this sai is, you know, it is the uh, condition that the, the normal condition of our lives is that we, you know, we, we strive, you know, we fight ourselves to get up for pleasure, perhaps for the hijrud. We're off, you know, many of us are fasting today. That is a, a struggle. Uh, some of us wanted to take the hajj this year, and that is, you know, financially it's sa'i, uh, physically it's sa'i. You know, we have our everyone has their own difficulties in their personal situations, their family situations, their work situations, their community situations, you know, and so we continue our sa'i. This whole life is one of sa'i and of mujahada, right? And yet on this, while we do the sa'i, it's not one straight line of consistent sa'i with no, with no breaks and no ease and no openings, right? That between the each, each kind of uh, 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 period of sa'i, there's going to be the ups. There's going to be the times of exaltation when we go up, right? When we have these openings, when we have these these periods of ease of Safa and of Marwa, right? And Safa and Marwa themselves, the meaning, the linguistic meaning of Safa is this purity, right? Safa, something that's pure, that's 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 um, 
you know, uh, pure without, it's clear, it's, it's unencumbered in that sense. And then Marwa has this, you know, this etymological connection with quenching of one's thirst, right? So, you know, the, the, the spiritual meaning that some of our, uh, that we find in our, in our spiritual tradition is that there are going to be times on this journey of Sa'i where God gives us moments and times and periods of, of Safa, of clarity, where, you know, things are clearer, you know, we ascend upon Safa and we see things more clearly when you're higher up, you can see things more clearly. Um, and, uh, and times of marwa, of quenching of that thirst um, of, of those spiritual gifts. And this is the sunnah that, as we started with, of Hajar alayhi salam, that outwardly, you know, she is, is seeking and struggling and striving to find the water for her son. But inwardly, from the very beginning, her state was one of complete surrender and reliance upon God um, that was unshakable until the very end when God caused the well of Zemzem uh, to erupt uh, for her. So with that, inshallah, uh, we will begin uh, taking some questions. Um, uh, and if any of you have to, uh, to, to leave, I just wanted to wish you uh, a very, very Mubarak Eid, inshallah. Uh, and um, inshallah, I, have, I hope you have a very joyous and blessed Eid with your family and your loved ones. Um, and uh, inshallah that you enjoy uh, the days of, of Eid. Um, so for the questions, Um, okay, so the first question I have here is uh, the words in the verse, there is no blame on him walking between them, seems to imply that this is not obligatory, but rather good to do and not wrong. Am I reading this wrong? So that's, in fact, uh, the, the, the point I was trying to make is that the wording by itself, um, if this was the only thing we had about Safa and Marwa, right, in, in that, you know, parallel universe, uh, if that were hypothetically the case, then you could say, you know, the sa'i might not be obligatory, right? But we have the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that he himself, you know, did the sa'i, he, he commanded them to do the sa'i, um, that this was, the companions all did the sa'i. This is why when Urwa, the nephew of, of Aisha says to her, you know, based on this verse, you know, there's no blame on he and, and he or she who doesn't do uh, the sa'i. And she says, you know, no, you understood this wrong. That the verse is 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 uh, is phrased in that way because of the context of this revelation. But uh, this is what the Prophet Muhammad commanded, right? So we know from uh, other uh, indicators, other sources, that this was in fact uh, the case. However, um, it does have an impact an impact on some of the details of the fiqh, right? That, that you know, some schools of thought. The Shafi'i school, for example, will say that there is no way to, if someone doesn't do the sa'i, okay, in hash, for the Shafi'is, there's no way to expiate that. So it's not that you can, like, let's say someone goes to hash and they forget to do the sa'i or they decide not to do it, for example, in the Shafi'i, they leave, right, they leave Mecca. Um, they can't uh, expiate through a slaughter, right? That's not an expiation for it because it is actually... Um, uh, a rukun of the hajj, right? So they have to do the side. There's no other way to replace that that integral aspect of the hajj. Whereas other schools, uh, I believe like the Hanafi and the Hanbali schools, they're a little bit more lenient. They allow for other expiations be, uh, for the Safa and the Marwa. And part of, and this is not the only proof, but part of the discussion does bring in the, the wording of the this ayah uh, as being less uh, insistent upon 
the uh, the uh, absolute command of the sa'i as being an integral of hajj, but it cer most certainly is a part of the hajj and a part of the umrah um, that has to be completed. But what happens if you don't complete it? That's an area of uh, discussion. Uh, okay, another question that I see here is, um, did you say Ismail and his mother are buried in the Kaaba? Um, not in the Kaaba, in the Hijr. Um, so the Kaaba is, uh, which is part of the Kaaba, in fact. So there's the, the cubic uh, structure, and then there's the Hijr, the uh, half moon. That's where they are uh, buried, um, uh, according to um, you know the dominant account. That's where they're buried uh, beneath the Hijr of, of Ismail. Um, and there's a question, does Hajr and the word Hajj have any connection to each other? Um, I don't believe so. So Hajj is with a hat and Hajar is with a hat and then Jim Ra and there's an edit in between. So there's the only letter that they share would be the Jim. Um, so there's no uh, etymological connection there uh, to the two words. Okay, so that's it for today. Inshallah, I don't see any other uh, questions. Um, so uh, we'll stop here, inshallah. Jazakum uh, for for uh, attending and, and uh, for your questions and your comments. And uh, may Allah Taala accept your 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 acts of worship during these blessed days and uh, your fasting if you are fasting, inshallah, and your your utheya um, and all of your deeds, inshallah, bless you and, and your and your family and Eid Mubarak to all of you. Uh, and we'll stop here, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk Allahumma wa natubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum.